So I think we think of freedom as a place or destination rather than an embodiment or a way, an embodied practice or a, a way of seeing and being in the world. Maybe that's where I find myself now. It does not take away from the very real material conditions that we want to change for our people. But I think if you are being freedom, there's no way for you not to want to take the shackles off of your hands. Mm -hmm. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, depending on where you are. Uh, I'm Robin D.G. Kelly, and you have come to the first episode of what is being called the Freedom Dreams podcast. Um, it is the brainchild of my friend and the great publisher of Haymarket Books, uh, Anthony Arnoff. Uh, and, you know, the idea is to basically have conversations, I mean, for me at least, to have conversations with people that I really, really like, you know, <laughs> people who... Um, uh, you know, the very people who really sort of turned uh, freedom dreams from noun to verb. It's not, the, the whole podcast is not about revisiting the book or trying to be nostalgic or, you know, we may not even talk about the book. But these are the folks who really did, I think, for me, um, move some of the discussions I posed, some of the questions I posed or issues I posed uh, to a whole different level I mean, some really brilliant visionary thinkers and movers, the artists and creators who uh, have opened up new vistas to the radical imagination. Um, and I should say, these are also the folks that I learn the most from, my teachers. Um, to just let you know um, in advance, uh, the other uh, conversations will be uh, with Kanga Imada-Taylor on November 17th. Uh, the composer, pianist, scholar, uh, Samora Pinderhughes on December 13th. Um, the uh, original true Professor Kelly, Eliza Kelly, who happens to be my daughter, on January 19th. Uh, we'll talk a lot about the genesis of this book from her perspective. Uh, but for now, I am honored, you know, terrified in some ways, to be with my friend Aja Monet, who you know is has to be first, um, and let me explain why. Um, and I'm going to say more about Aja in a second. But when my editor at Beacon Press asked me, um, you know, who who did I want to write the forward, I did not hesitate to say Aja, Aja Monet, or no one. There was no other option, you know. 
uh, for reasons that you'll find out. But no one really kind of, to me, uh, was really engaged with this text and everything that it meant, everything I wanted it to be, uh, and going way beyond it than, than Aja Monet. Um, and we'll talk about that in a second. But uh, I think the first time I actually heard Aja uh, as a poet might have been uh, Carrie Mae Weems Live at the, Gu the Guggenheim, like 2014. Um, but let me just say who, who Aja is. Of course, everyone knows. Um, and if you don't know, um, shame on you. But in her own words, uh, she describes herself as a Caribbean-American surrealist blues poet, a word musician. Um, she's a storyteller. She's an organizer with a long political history, uh, born and raised in Brooklyn. Um, she, uh, as many of you know, uh, was the youngest to win the New Yorican Poets uh, Cafe Grand Slam Poetry Award titles 2007. Um, and in many ways, continues that legacy of revolutionary poetry. I think of people like Sonia Sanchez and Seku Sundiata, two of the most influential figures in, in, in my left and right brains. And I think Aja in some ways carries that and much more. Um, her first uh, full collection of poems published by Haymarket, My Mother Was a Freedom Fighter. So if you don't have that, there's an opportunity to, to purchase it. Um, and we'll talk more about what her poems do and say. Uh, and I could go on and on about all the awards, the NAACP Literary uh, Award for Poetry, uh, the uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Award for Poetry. Uh, you know, she co-founded, you know, um, uh, a Smoke Signal Studio, you know, and facilitated Voices Poetry for the People and some other things which um, she writes about in the foreword. She's also, she also has a, uh, her first uh, album as a leader coming out, uh, amazing uh, jazz, uh, spoken word or poetry called When the Poems Do What They Do. And with that, uh, welcome, Aja. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I know, we're, we're not even that far away. It could be in my, in my, um, in my garage. Yeah, we kind of just went to your living room. I know, right? Exactly. But exactly. Um, gonna warn everyone now. Forgive me for my voice being strained, but um, it is such an honor to be here with you. So, Thank yeah, you. I should have mentioned that, and I'm I'm really apologize. I wish we could do this another day, but I'm going to try to do the best I can not to make you talk too much. Although that's kind of a contradiction, since the whole idea is for you to to do the talking. You know. Um, but let's let's begin. I mean, one of the reasons I really wanted, I mean, there's many, many reasons I wanted to have you uh, as the first guest. But, you know, we recently had a conversation about your travels uh, to the African continent and what it means uh, today. And I know that um, you know, recently you're doing this project in Ghana. We're going to get to that later. Um, but if you don't mind, can we begin with you talking about, you know, like what is Africa to you, you know? Um, and I know your first trip was to Senegal, I believe, that's right. But just talk, what is, what is Africa to you? And especially in the context of some of the things, you know, that you, know, you 
you've read in Freedom Dreams about what does it mean to try to find home or homeland? Uh, what are the you know what does that entail? But if you just walk walk us through your you know Africa in, in terms of how you imagine what it was for you, what it was for you politically, socially, culturally, spiritually, uh, in your journeys and travels, and then we'll go from there. Thank you, Robin. Um, I revisited your the chapter about uh, dreams of the new land before this talk, and we had a conversation yesterday where um, I shared with you the work that I'm doing now, and it's what I said to you before this call was that it's funny how history repeats itself. Um, and why I feel so honored to have the, the privilege for you to invite me to be the person to write the forward for this 20th anniversary of this book is what I said in the forward, which is to be living a life where like you're just doing and being and existing. And then there's this book that feels like, wait, is this writing my life? Like, is this me? And, but it was written 20 years ago. Um, it's, it's really surreal. It's surreal that you wrote something that is in the world, you know, unbeknownst to so many people. And we are really, really, um, it's really about looking back at our past and what we've, we've already accomplished in our imagination. Um, and how for many of us, time is not past, present, future, mm -hmm. just is. Right. Um, and so when I was revisiting, one of the things that came up for me was the irony that I would, you know, being a Caribbean American, the child of Caribbean American immigrants born to New York, uh, what I would learn being raised in a urban city about America, about capitalism, about society, about cultures and many different culture, cultural identities, about the possibility of this coexistence that we could have um, for all intents and purposes while New York is, you know, a beacon of so much of the failures of American society. It is the epitome of some of its successes, some mm -hmm. of its um, possibilities. And I think I lived in between that. Live. I think that's part of my challenge has always been this in-betweenness. Um, so to go from that to then being in Florida, traveling a bit, I went to Europe, I did other things, I went to school in, in, in Chicago, um, but to find myself organizing in Florida mm -hmm. and what I would learn doing in Florida in the work that we were doing with Dream Defenders around Maroon communities and escaped Africans who fled to Florida. And here I am coming from the North, fleeing to Florida, the South, which is typically seen as a place, it's usually seen as, you know, the great migration is reversed, that people leave from the South up to the North. And here I was going from the North to the South, looking for freedom. Um, and many different ways, you know, not just how people think of freedom in terms of access to more wealth, but um, just space and land and relationship to, to nature and you know things that we lack in urban environments. Right. Um, 
and then learning of the Maroons who, you know, went into, were these sovereign communities that existed in Florida and realizing that as we were doing this work to organize our community and thinking about what freedom meant and free zones, I mean, Dream Defenders was trying to really create actual zones within our community that we could name as free right. and free from policing, free from harm, free from gender violence, free from poverty. Um, and that as, I, as I'm looking into this, you know, into poets and poets that come from, you know, learning about the poets that come from Florida and the South, I delve more into Zora's work and learning more mm -hmm. about the maroon communities and sovereign communities and what was, you know, free black communities, what did that look like? And, you know, to see that you talked about these sovereign communities almost as these places of imagination for new land, for new territory, for new possibilities that in intrinsically, intuitively, maybe genetically, there's something that I was called, I was called to do or called to seek and it was seeking me. Mm -hmm. And I think the stories that I was looking for were really finding me. And by virtue of that, it feels almost natural that the progression would be the continent. Um, right. So I can't say that it was like planned, you know, or that it was necessarily thought of, like this is what I, my life will be. But naturally what it's led me to is to, to interrogate my relationship and deepen my relationship to the continent, especially as we're in a time where folks are, you know, we're we're fed up with America. We feel right. um, at lost with with the the state of this country, um, oftentimes in despair, while we still resist and show up and still believe in the possibilities of this of this country. And more than this country, we believe in the possibility of the people of this country. Right. People are what make this country what it is. So I think I'm I'm finding myself now, um, you know, almost like it's like a little late in our movement because you would think we would have learned some of these things from before. Some things you got to repeat in order to mm -hmm. learn them. You got to go through them. You know, like that's why your parents will sometimes be like, okay, go learn a lesson. I can tell you all I want, but you got to go figure it out for yourself. Right. And I think... Um, you know, I've learned of Pan-Africanism. I've heard of it. It's been in the ether and the ethos of Black arts movement. So it's never been new. Right. But right. Um, I think that it is important in this iteration of our movement to be thinking about what our solidarity looks like with not just Palestine. Right. And Cuba and Mexico and the places that, and Brazil, these are places that we have done delegations to as organi organizers, but we have not done the same level of work I think needs to be done to create um, deep relationships with folks on the continent. And this is where I currently see my work. Right. Um, so before we get to Senegal, let me, let me say some things, also give your voice a rest. <laughs> um, that some things you you prompted in me one i just want to um i was remembering you know when we first actually met because i've seen you you know follows you you know you're famous um but when we actually met was at a the freedom at um dream defenders convening uh in florida 
Uh, and I remember Eddie Gloud and, and myself, we were speakers. But then you did something. Um, you took the whole room on this deep spiritual journey. And, you know, I've, I've had experiences like that, kind of. I mean, I'm not always invested because, you know, um, some aspects of, you know, the university jacked me up. But I've kind of gotten over it. <laughs> but I have to say, um, in that moment when you brought us all in the room to really ground ourselves, um, I felt like you carried with you in, in like under your skin, in your, deep in your consciousness, the whole history of, of kind of black women's spiritual traditions from Obia to Vodun to, you know, um, uh, to uh, uh, ancestor divination, all that stuff you brought in to make us connect with the earth in a different sort of way. Like you had this knowledge. And I, 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 for the first time, I think in my life, I felt totally relaxed. You came right to my face. Like you go into everyone's face and you said this. And I felt like, okay, wait a second. Now I'm in your possession. You know, that's, that's never happened to me. I was like totally in your possession. And I don't I, even remember this. You don't remember? Well, because you deal with everybody. And I just happen to be, you know, one of the people. And, and that's important for, for, for me for what we're talking about, because of course you're going to go south. You know, like what you know, and we talked about this as well, is that, you know, we always think of flight in North America as a northern movement. But as you know, as, as a daughter of the Caribbean, it's a southern movement, too. It's a movement across the Caribbean basin. It's a movement to, um, to Haiti, to other islands. It's a movement to the land of the Seminole um, before uh, Andrew Jackson and his people basically uh, disrupted through, through war and violence uh, the power that they had as an extension of sovereignty that included and incorporated uh, African peoples. You know, and you, it's like you carry that. The other thing is that, yes, I, I agree that in some ways history does feel like it repeats itself in that we have to learn, but your generation learn or knows way more than all the maroon societies in the past. What do I mean by that? And people say, well, don't disrespect them. Well, I'm not disrespecting them because the way you're imagining what sovereignty and, you know, centering life, not just black life, but all life, meaning plant, animal life, life of, of ancestors still living, the life of those yet to come, that's all a life. That, that you, your, your, your generation and you in particular are saying, we do this without patriarchy. We do this without the kinds of hierarchies that were actually reproduced in maroon societies. People don't want to talk about that. Yes, you know, we could we could talk about Palmares, we could talk about all these amazing societies, but ultimately you actually reproduce forms of patriarchal authority, you produce forms of of um uh, of of ownership of women and children, of of hierarchy, of kings. It wasn't the kind of 
radical uh, democratic practice that comes out of, say, the Combahee River Collective. They, you know, you don't, you're not going to find that in 17th century or 16th century. So in other words, we take the best of that and then improve and make it more inclusive, more powerful, uh, more loving, right? And I attribute, I attribute that to you. You know, that's why I'm like, I, I could go to, go to sleep at night knowing that Aja Monet exists in the world and there's many more. Uh, so having said all that, let's take your journal, journey like one step further. Um, so you go to Senegal uh, for the first time. Uh, Can I say something really quickly about what you yeah. just said? Okay. I just want to clarify that poetry brought me everywhere that I've ever been. Mm -hmm. And the only reason why I think it's important to, to note is that in the realm of poets, what determines your abilities or your stand in a community of poets, while there's still patriarchy and all these other mm -hmm. things, at the end of the day, you can't knock, you can never neglect or deny skill. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is why I think art can be a very grounding place for organizing because what I saw in the workshop space with poetry, the reason why I thought it would be so useful for the organizing space was that you can't lie in a poem. It will reveal, it will reveal you, mm -hmm. even if, no matter how much you want to pretend you're good at this thing or portray or speak rhetoric rhetorically, if you really know how to read a poem and you really know how to write a poem, then it will reveal you. And I think that one of the things that I was trying to do with Poetry for the People is, is the attempt to do what you're saying, which is to defy, kind of take away the idea that patriarchy was the metric or mm -hmm. gender or class or any of these other things became the metric of standing. <clears throat> But that what gave you the right to speak in the room was whether or not you did the exercise. Right. Whether or not you did the prompt. Right. Whether or not you got you went there, whether or not you went deep into yourself and wrote the thing and did the thing and expressed the thing and interrogated the thing. And I think we don't we don't we don't have a lot of spaces that are cultivated in our movement where the metric of who we are is how how free we can be in the room. Mm -hmm. Like, who's the most free? Not who's the most oppressed or the most hurt or the most wounded or the most traumatized, but who's really trying to do the work to be free? And I think poetry and art can allow us to get to that place. It's not always the answer, but it is an attempt for us to try to struggle with ideas right. and our expression of those ideas. So that's why I think it's important just to note that I still struggle with this as an artist and as a writer mm -hmm. to be my most tr truthful self and 
to struggle to interrogate the ideas that I've been brought into in the world that I've been, I live in. And art has been my way through that. Right, right. Why do you think those spaces are rare in, or, or, or that practice of, of kind of tapping into poetic knowledge and poetic truth? Why do you think it's so rare in organizing spaces? Honestly, I think it's we don't know our history. It's very simple. I don't think it's I don't think it's um I don't think it's for lack of love mm-hmm. or lack of commitment or lack of, you know, dedication and agency. I think it's just lack of political education and history that if we knew our history, we knew what came before us, we would know that this has always been a part of our tradition. Right. Um, so I think, you know, I said this, I had a talk yesterday and it was with Major Jackson and um, Ishian um, Hutchinson. Mm-hmm. And I was saying that academia never really gave me the tools that I needed to learn who I was. That wasn't where I went to learn about myself. Um, I sat at the foot of people like Elder Abio Dun Oyewole, Sonia Sanchez. Mm-hmm. I was hungry. I went to the Schomburg. I would run to go listen. I saw Maya Angelou and Lucille Clifton and Ishmael Reed and all these people. I ran because I was hungry to know myself. I was hungry right. to understand who I was. And they were always there. I think it's just a matter of seek and you shall find, you know, um, the hunger to know about yourself and to know that a lot of our people left us the blueprint. They left Mm -hmm. us materials. They left us information about what worked, what didn't, what struggles they had, what emotional truths they were dealing with. This is something that was is our inheritance. It's there for us. And I think that's why Freedom Dreams, your book, is so important because it's not the answer, but it is a prompt for people to, mm-hmm. to do the work, to start to look at some of these people that you're mentioning and some of these movements and moments so that we can go find the, source, the actual primary sources mm-hmm. of this stuff. So I think that's part of it. And I think also, I want to say that we do things unconsciously. We just don't name them all the time. So we, for example, we started smoke signals because people wanted, would come to our house after organizing meetings. And uh, one of the brothers had a guitar sister was like ready to rap was ready to get some stuff out her chest some people had some some tambourines whatever it was and we would kick back and drink and we knew we needed to get release we knew mm-hmm. we needed to be among each other we knew it was it was intuitive we we knew we needed to express ourselves but i don't think we thought of that as strategic right i don't think we we saw that as um a strategy for our liberation. We didn't name that. 
as no, this is integral to our freedom. This is integral to our movement meetings. This is integral to the spaces we create in the world we want to see. This is the world we want to see. These are the things we want to fight for. And I think we kind of take each other for granted sometimes. Um, and so I think that's part of it is not necessarily understanding that we do it naturally. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the things we do intuitively are our greatest tools, our greatest lessons for strategy, for our liberation. But we're like, oh, that's that comes easy. So, you know, the struggle must be hard, must be this <laughs> difficult thing we got to do. It's like sometimes the things that, that come to you with ease are really things we should be doing. If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, After Life, A Collective History of Loss and Redemption in Pandemic America, edited by Raylan Barnes, Carrie Lee Merritt, and Yahuru Williams. After Life is a collective history of how Americans experienced, navigated, commemorated, and ignored mass death and loss during the global COVID-19 pandemic, mass uprisings for racial justice, and the near-presidential coup in 2021 following the 2020 election. Inspired by the writers who documented American life during the Great Depression and World War II for the Works Progress Administration, the editors asked 21st century historians and legal experts to focus on the parallels, convergences, and differences between the exceptional long 2020 while it unfolds and earlier eras in U.S. history. As Sarah Jaffe puts it, in this moment, when plague reality continues to underscore how undercared for we all are, reading After Life has been a balm. Find After Life at haymarketbooks.org. Right, right. Well, you you know, you just laid out um, what was once the pedagogical model of what we might call like African knowledge, you know, what, what the university should be. That is to say, because um, I mean, let's, let's face it, the university is pretty bankrupt. Even the way that we teach history uh, is pretty bankrupt, the way we, we write it. I mean, you know, when you talked about um, like poetry as, as form, um, the idea of the griot, the griot wasn't necessarily the person who uh, has an encyclopedic knowledge of, you know, every lineage and every, you know, that wasn't the point of the griot. It's not, it's not the, the specific information that matters as much as the delivery and the art. It's a work of art to tell the story of a people. And that work of art always changes. Just like, you know, musicians, great jazz musicians, they'll tell you, you know, you, you can go to Juilliard, you could, you, could, you could learn all scales all day long and learn all the corresponding scales to, to chords, but that's not what makes music. What makes music is hanging out, listening to elders, being, you know, quiet, um, trying things and failing, you know, missing the bus, getting on the bus. Um, and and not necessarily treating uh, your teachers as a set of um, as a hierarchy with people with with degrees who because they have this degree or that degree that that gives them knowledge 
the the base of knowledge as you described so beautifully is all the elders and all the people around us and every single experience that we can have that we absorb it we we swallow it you know and we we synthesize it and make something out of it and when we make something out of it that's our own but still connected to the people everyone connects with you and that and then you pass it on like that's what you describe exactly and so i think maybe part of the problem is we're still stuck in how we tell our stories you know what evidence is you know everyone's afraid of of whatever the archive when in fact so much of what we know comes from as you say um from what we feel mm. and then how do you take that feeling feeling that might have been invested in you from ancestors and turn it into um something that maybe not guaranteed but maybe languageable and that brings me back to you and to i guess the two things i want to really get to is the relationship between your journey to the continent journeys you know senegal zanzibar ghana you know etc and what you are calling uh diaspora feminism you know so i'm not going to say anything else i just want to hear you tell that story and then, and then talk about the project that you're doing projects you're doing now if you like yeah mm-hmm. something i want to bring up that i think you would enjoy that phil and i when we did a ted talk we wrote um that our social movements should be like jazz encouraging active participation listening freedom improvisation um and that what people see as a party is actually a movement meeting and i think um it encapsulates what we were just saying when i think about the work to the continent um you know it's interesting because one of the first things i did before i went to senegal was haiti uh the earthquake in haiti had happened mm-hmm. and haiti was like one of my first i feel like migrations to the continent without going to the continent um because i felt something that i feel in the continent there um and i think i would say this about jamaica probably say this about cuba as well um those places though because they are of the diaspora there is i think more of this in betweenness that i felt feel connected to mm-hmm. um so those are places where my inklings of africa were were strengthened like knowing that i was a part of not quite american not quite a part of this western society but also african but not quite african there was this feeling of in betweenness and i got invited to go with some friends to an art biennial in senegal mm-hmm. and um <clears throat> 
we went to visit Gore, and what I talk about in diaspora feminism is this embodied practice or this embodied knowing that comes from deep feeling. And, you know, part of that is also colored by, I can't talk about what I'm talking about without talking about spiritual practice. Right. Um, knowing that my grandmother was Santera, I came from places that I, it was normal for me to see people under possession. It was normal for me to see spirits as a child. It was nor- These are things that everybody say now, but right. <laughs> when I was coming up, you know, it's not something you talk about. Right, right. It's also not something you, it's not something you don't talk about just because of fear of people not knowing or othering or judging what you experience. It's also because I was taught that the magic is in the invisible. Um, So where we're in a society where everything's about visibility, Mm -hmm. the power of the spirit is in the fact that it's invisible and that it's not seen. So the things that often are not seen were always the things that intrigued me. I think that's part of what made me a poet was what people were not saying and so what people were gesturing towards, um, what you could feel or discern in a, in a, in a room or a, in somebody's posture, somebody's language or tone, um, those are things that always intrigued me, I think, as a young person. So when I went back to the continent and I had this experience, I had some inkling or some knowledge of the fact that you are not alone, you in this body, as you move in the world, there's you and there's the person you were brought up to be and Aja, the person that everybody sees as Aja, but there's also who who you're carrying, who's with you. Um, some people you don't know, <laughs> to be very frank. Yeah. You think that your ancestors is all cute and, <laughs> right. and great because you know that your grandma, your grandpa was this person, your great grandpa. But when you start doing that blood DNA test, mm-hmm. you realize you got thousands of traces of other people. Right. Um, so I say that to say, sometimes we have a feeling and we don't know what that feeling means, but it doesn't mean that we don't know. Right. The feeling is there. There is a feeling. So coming to Gore and having this experience where I don't want to over romanticize and dramatize it, but it was some shit, you know, you, you walk through a space that folks were, went through some of the most treacherous experience known to mankind. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how any human being could stand in the face of that and not feel something. Right. Um, so for me, I the things that went through my head were things that I brought up in that piece around, well, we talk a lot about our lives post-slavery. We don't imagine who, were, who people were before. We don't often talk about who people were before they were enslaved. And we think about, you know, oh, we were kings and queens, but what about mm-hmm. the carpenter, you know? Mm-hmm. What about... What about the the griot? What about the poet? What about the person that was just 
planting plants and mixing herbs and right right you know um i just wondered about those things and in wondering about those things i wondered about the imagination of the people who were forced to board these ships and were enslaved and who they would become what things would be cultivated in that imagination what would come of people who were forced in these conditions but were people before that that condition right so I think that that was part of, that's part of my, what I spend my days thinking about. Yeah, that's funny because that was Cedric Robinson's whole life project to try to figure out what those people were before enslavement. And who they were before is reflective of who they will be. Exactly, exactly. Anyway, I didn't mean to to interrupt, but but you made me think a lot about Cedric, who's always in the room with me. so so what did that what did that do for you in terms of your own thinking about how to get free about liberation about freedom you know when you you know being in Senegal and and, and I you know your description of of swimming in the waters and in and, and not being able to to move until you allow the currents to bring you back um, what what did that do for you in terms of your thinking about politics and movement and struggle and freedom and all that? Well, I don't. I think I'm still grappling with my thoughts around it, but I know what I feel, and I know that I there's a uh, poet and thinker, Bio Akobolafe, and he talks about this about could it be that you know the the those who were on enslaved in these ships praying to Jemaja or what other sources of um, gods worships you know spiritual guides whatever forces that they prayed to to the ocean to the sea to the storms that as they prayed for the thunders to come and for the the waves to pour over them that they knew that death was not the end, and they knew that um, that death would not be the greatest fear. Mm-hmm. So, what does it mean to understand that we are part of an ecosystem, that we're part of molecules, and you know all the things that make up society? We're part of water and air and all these other elements that we experience. That we are wind, that we are in the wind, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, that who has the last laugh, really, if we know these things, if we know that um, we will go soon go to dust and the same oceans that took us under, the people are terrified of, are the same oceans that are rallying on the shores of Florida right now, you know, rising sea levels. Um, and we think of those as not being connected. Um, that who's to say that this is not our reckoning? Um, who's to say that we were ever not free right. because we were enslaved physically, flesh and blood, but that we didn't know our power, that we didn't know um, that, 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 they, that they, quote unquote, would not have the final word, the last word about our 
our dignity, our humanity, our, our spirit. So I think about that often. Mm -hmm. And I also think about something that comes up in that piece. What does it mean for a woman to have, to bear a child on that ship? Um, for someone to have, you know, given birth to a child is an act of resistance because here's life being born on a ship leading to death. Right. Um, and what would that life represent? Would that the, what would that ability to give life and continue to, to perceive, um, possibility through that life? Um, what, what does that represent? What is that, you know, um, what 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 is what can we find in that imagination in that mind in the spirit of that person who was able to still create in the midst of utter destruction and turmoil right. um, to still to still foster life and at times to take life at times to know when it was was time to take life mm -hmm. um, those things are things I question and I wonder about I don't necessarily think I have an answer. But I think freedom, as I said before, it's not elusive. I think it's, um, you know, people think that Harry Tubman was running toward freedom. People don't realize that she was freedom herself. Mm -hmm. The very fact that she did something was the freedom. And so I think we think of freedom as a place or destination rather than an embodiment or a way, an embodied practice or a a way of seeing and being in the world. Maybe that's where I find myself now right. is, is, is there. Does not take away from the very real material conditions that we want to change for our people. Um, but I think if you are being freedom, there's no way for you not to want to take the shackles off of your hands. Mm -hmm. Right, right. You know, if you are freedom, you're going to do everything to get the foot off of your neck Mm -hmm. Because you know what it is to be free. And you know that anybody that's trying to take that from you is either really, really enslaved, right? Or um, is, is, is getting ready to meet death. <laughs> right. Well, you, that, that, that goes totally against the prevailing wisdom in certain academic circles right now, which is to say people treat social death as a kind of, if not a fait accompli, certainly this this is overdetermined. And so, you're talking about people who don't who don't recognize it, who refuse to accept social death. They just keep they they're like we're making life, no matter what we keep making life. And as you say, sometimes taking life, but it's a refusal to accept that. And the irony is that some of the some of the same people who make an argument um, for the uh, sort of overwhelming power of social death are also some of the same people who made the argument that um, free, that the West invented freedom. Mm. There was no freedom for the rest of the world before the West invented it. And what you're describing is not only a memory of it, a recognition of it, but a refusal to accept anything less than, yeah. even if it means strike a blow and die. You know, I think that's so important because at the end of my book, I have a quote from Cherry Moraga that reminds me of this. Mm -hmm. And it goes, uh, my mother does not worry about me. She fears me. She fears the power of the life she helped breathe into me. She fears the lesson she taught me will move into action. 
She fears I might be willing to die rather than settle for less than the best than the best of loving. And I think that that's what we're afraid of. And I think of even as women, people who identify as women, feminists, that we terrify the patriarch because we say, no, I believe in the best has yet to come. Mm-hmm. I believe that there's a, there is a freedom awaiting you and me. There's a love that is we have yet to feel and experience and be. And rather than, or maybe not yet, but we, we, we did, and we've been, I think, programmed or conditioned into believing that it wasn't enough or that it isn't enough. And so I think that that's part of the struggle as well, which is to know that, um, that we are enough. Right. And something I thought of as you were speaking around social death, the pandemic, this is something that Bio brought up as well, but could it be that our life is not the most important thing? Could it be that um, this form, this flesh, is not the only way to be in the world? Could it be that, you know, the earth, whatever had to happen, I know that's very morbid and people don't want to think about it as as such, but when we sat still, you know, us, us mm-hmm. fighters and social justice workers and trying to change the world, we think we're the greatest agents of change, sometimes, right. humans. And the <laughs> pandemic was like, nah, sit down. Right. <laughs> and I think it challenged us as organizers, as leaders, as thinkers, was when we sat down, a lot of things changed. Some people didn't have to sit, let's be clear. There were essential workers still still working, still still doing um, labor in this country at the expense of others, you know, leisure. But for the most part, I think we feel sometimes as humans so self-righteous about our lives. And the environment, I think, has a lot to teach us. Um, the planet has a lot to teach us about life. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's a lot for us to learn from what we had to deal with in the pandemic, where yes, there was a lot of death and there was a lot of despair around that death. But what came of that moment was also a lot of life. Um, A lot of life was born of that moment as well. And I think the thing that I learned in the continent and from spiritual practice is that the binary isn't real. This, you know, this false narrative of good and evil is not true Um, and that things happen in balance. You know, there's, for the most part, energy and spirit works through balance. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's a different way to look at the world that we have not been oriented into in the West. Right, right, exactly. Unless, unless of course, you're initiated in, in those traditions like Santeria, where, you know, ancestors are not good or bad it's not about that they 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 had they carry so many of the kind of human qualities of and, and of of you know jealousy and love forgiveness and you know pettiness and that's why we're always giving ancestors things 
We're like, here, take some honey, take some money, <laughs> you know, like chill. Because that is how the world works. And that recognition of it, um, you know, like you, you cannot um, recognize a world where your ancestors are not necessarily omnipotent gods who are perfect, but actually much more like we in terms of striving to be good. But what does that really mean in a world where balance requires some bad things to happen in order for us to move forward? Um, and, and this is so we live for our, our ancestors. Our ancestors are telling us things. We're learning and listening and we live for the next generation to come or generations to come. You know, like, how could you believe that and not be an abolitionist? You know, because if you're an abolitionist, you're not going to deal, deal with the, the foolishness of, okay, there's good and evil, and it's just, that's how it is. And you fall into evil, and therefore you, um, it, it's, we, we, we throw that out. And also recognition of, like you are saying, um, looking at all of life as interconnected, uh, which leads me to so a couple things. Um, since time is is for us finite, <laughs> we don't we don't we only have a few minutes left. So what I want to do is we've got maybe 10, 15 minutes. Um, I want to open up questions for people which they could put in the chat. Um, and while people are thinking about questions, I want to go back. Uh, to um, one thing in particular, Aja, um, which I think would be really great for everyone to really, for you to talk about your definition of diaspora feminism. You know, uh, there's so many, you know, I heard you give this talk, TED Talk, where you talk about like, you know, it's, it's called Daughters of the Doorway, but you talk about, um what it means not to be defined by passports and ID cards, to disrupt the sovereignty of nation states, to explore the full range of our interior worlds. Um, a system of thought that is like governed um, uh, not by ego and not by gender inequality, but by something much more liberatory. And diaspora feminism is something that recognizes difference, you know, without having to sort of think about this as a kind of sameness. There's so many things, elements to that, which I think we can learn from. So how are you thinking about that? And how is it playing out um, in terms of your practice? You know, you may want to talk about the project you're doing right now. Uh, oh, yeah. So I'm currently um, working on launching a play that will, we haven't officially announced we will in the coming weeks. Um, with V-Day, an organization to end violence against women and girls. I'll be launching a play that will be an audio play called Voices. And it will, I think, embody what our hope is that as people experience the play, they're forced to go inward and to explore how solidarity is really a practice in active listening mm -hmm. and building, fostering and facilitating relationships that are, deep, are deeply rooted in critical listening. Um, and we collected submissions and stories from women all across the continent and um, the diaspora. We created this piece for everyone mm -hmm. to 
experience. And the first place it's going to be experienced in person will be in Ghana, in Accra, December. And I'm still learning a lot about myself through this project, just in terms of what it's meant, what it's meant for me to work with one of my really close sisters, Hollis Heath, um, on this project, someone I grew, I grew up with and who was, you know, just a profound artist, thinker, writer, person in the world. And for us as two black women from the States to have gone back to Accra, to Ghana, and to experience ourselves in Accra and in Ghana in relationship to not just each other, but to people we love and who we've fallen in love with, people we've shared food and time and energy with, um, what it's meant for us to really think about the feelings that come up for us um, mm -hmm. and what those feelings are telling us about how we move and how we ought to move. Because I do believe there is something that tells us we know better uh, when we when we do, you know, like we know when we being off and we just continue to go along. Mm -hmm. um, we'll say to each other, like, yeah, girl, like, I love the food here, but I do miss, <laughs> da, 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 you know? <laughs> Hella American, right? Because right. we're used to certain things and we got to mm -hmm. like, interrogate that and talk about it. Those are things that I say that to say, like we have had to have these conversations about what parts of us are really, really, um, I guess conjured or resonate with being in the continent and what parts of us are still in allegiance, mm -hmm. um, still tied to where we came from and the, and the air that we, we were brought up in and the cities and the environment that cultivated us and how does that show up as we move in the world right. with a passport? Um, what does that mean? Because we never fully felt like we were American when we were in America, and yet we never fully felt African when we were in Africa. So we believe we are daughters of the doorway, you know, daughters in this in-between. And mm -hmm. I think that's part of what diaspora feminism is, is the thing I'm struggling with in trying to articulate what that is, is what does it mean to be in this in-between? And it's very different than being in-between as someone that identifies as a man or moves in the world as a man, um, where masculinity is, is often attributed, the attributes of masculinity are about ownership and property and acquiring more and you know what you can protect and defend. And I think, for me, what I've experienced with people who identify as women or who are moving in the world with a more feminine awareness is that it's really about a connection to land and a relationship to people, um, a, a, a film familiarity, a sort of a, a reckoning of broken relationships, of torn relationships, and an, an eagerness to mend those relationships, to understand what those relationships say about who we are and who we who we were and who we will be. Right. I think that's something I'm struggling with. 
is how do we relate to one another across these invented borders um, and what things are clearly different that we must learn from, but also what are, what are we remembering? What are those remembrances? What are those things that are coming up for us as we remember, as we, right. we return, there is a remembering. Um, so let me go to a couple of the questions before we close. One, I'm trying to link the questions of what you just said, which of course is always so profound. Um, one person wants to know more about maroon communities, and maybe I could ask it this way. Um, what can we learn based on your study, but what can we learn from maroon communities about how to achieve that different way of being together and relating to, to life differently? Oh, that's a good question. I think Maroons are some of the truest artists. And I say that to say, artists tend to be the Maroons of our community mm -hmm. in the sense that um, it's really about collaboration. It's invention and collaboration and creativity. When you think about the Maroon communities, um, there are people that went to places that other people deemed in uninhabitable spaces where you know, people fled to the swamps, um, fled to places in high mountains. And you think about the Maroons in Jamaica or Brazil, um, they go to places that quote unquote white folks or people who do not have a relationship to the land are afraid of or terrified of. <laughs> and um, you know, I think about people who spend time with herbs and with plants and um, medicine and medicine women, medicine men, people that talked to animals and right. knew that there was, that there was, it's a humility and a grace towards um, the environment that you're in and a willingness to not necessarily own or take, um, but to be in partnership to relate, um, to be in communion and community with the, the earth and with the land around you. And so I think things that we could learn from the Maroon communities was that it was multilingual, first of all, mm -hmm. right. um, multicultural, um, that it wasn't about indoctrinating people based off of a certain faith or set of moral values. Um, but that it was a based off of a commitment to uh, freedom right. and to people's uh, equality and dignity and, and access to, to resources and skill sets that everybody had to contribute their skill sets to the, to the productivity or the success of that Maroon community. Um, so we needed everyone to cultivate and learn how to cultivate their skill sets for the success and that there was a protection of secrecy. Mm -hmm. There was a protection of sacredness. There was a sacredness. I think something that we have lost today is an inability to value what is sacred. There's no distinction between the sacred and the profane. And I say that to say, I don't believe in the relig religiosity of the sacred, but that there are certain things that we hold with reverence and I think protection of children and natural resources and 
the land. I mean, these are things that are sacred. Right. And holding them sacred produces a certain kind of community and environment and code of conduct and way of being. And when you don't have things that you hold sacred, then everything's up for grabs. Exactly. Money becomes sacred. Yeah. No, exactly. and that's not <laughs> exactly. And I think that's it, that's exactly right. Um, so, two. I'm going to throw out two questions here. They're both unrelated, um, and then we're going to uh, have a little bit of closing here. But there's one question: uh, Are you familiar with the Afro-German poet activist May Aim? Um, there seems to be many striking parallels. That's one. Uh, and then the other one, the other question is, do you have any recommendations on how to vibrate slash resonate with the environment and find balance? I know you've been describing this. Um, and I think that one of the listeners really wants like direction. Like what what would you recommend we do to achieve that um, or begin to try to achieve Mm. this kind of resonance uh, connection mm. with environment and find balance. So those first are two question. questions. So yeah, may, question. may I? I do not know, but I would love to look up this person. Um, I'm going to be clear that I don't have all the answers. I'm still learning. No? No! <laughs> Can you believe it? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm still learning. And being in conversation with you, I'm learning. So, but what I'll say that works for me is I think we all have to spend time with ourselves in silence with everything off. It's really important to um, be able to listen to to all that rises up for you in your own space, if you can, if you are afforded the ability to do so. Um, because then I think you will value, because if you could hold time with yourself sacred, mm-hmm. you could hold time with the earth sacred. You are a reflection of the earth, you know? So I think if you don't find your own body, your own physical body sacred, then it's kind of hard for you to appreciate another person's body, let alone the earth. So I think that's the first thing I would say is, you can start very easily by every morning committing to five minutes of prayer. Five minutes. If you can get a week down of commitment, then you can move deeper. You could say, let me do 10 minutes. And then from there, I think trying to find a space that calls to you, what elements call to you, wind, water, du- ground, dirt, um, you know, all these things, fire. There are different ways for you to get grounded in the elements of nature. To me, the ocean is a place that I love to go. Somewhere that calls to me. When I'm in the ocean, I feel so small. The world feels so vast. And everything I think is so important comes that little. So, and you can hear a lot more. You can you learn to listen more deeply about what the earth has to say. So I say that, um, mountains, hiking can be really, really beautiful for, for you. One of my elders gave me one of the best advice. If you ever have a question or something's troubling you on your spirit, 
take that and go sit under a tree. Put your back to the, to the bark of the tree and just sit under the tree. Stay there for as long as you, can, you have to until you feel like you've come to some resolve. And I promise you, you will. That's pretty much the advice I would give. Okay, well, this the timing is perfect because um, as soon as they get off this call, I know what tree I'm going to. I know exactly what tree. I mean, literally. Um, if if we could close, I just want to read something to you very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so as as we mentioned, or as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, you have this amazing uh, album coming out, which is just classic. When the poems do what they do, and. Um, and I, and I confess, I had the honor and privilege to write the liner notes. And I just want to read something from the first paragraph of those liner notes, which to me sum up this extraordinary, uh, brilliant poet, warrior, peacemaker, lover, you know, um, just visionary in, 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 in Aja Monet. So this is what I wrote. I said, no, Ajamone understands poems not as words, but as life force. Poems issue from breath, body, memory, experience, imagination, spirits, and the faint whispers of ancestors. This is what makes the poem so powerful and dangerous, like violets pushing through concrete to kiss the sun, or unarmed people, arms locked, chanting and singing, forcing armies to retreat. Aja Monet is that unstoppable violet beckoned by the sun. She is the prophet of a people united. She is Jamaica, Cuba, Brooklyn, a daughter and sister, teacher and healer, a warrior who wields words like a bouquet of hand grenades, a soothing solve, silk sheets, and an offering to Yemaya, often in the same breath. Thank you. Thank you, Aja Monet, for spending this time with me. I, mean, I guess other people were involved. I don't know. <laughs> but it was very special, and you're such a special person. Um, so make sure everyone, you know, go immediately to the Haymarket website, buy her book if you don't already have it. Um, be prepared for the next book that's coming out with Haymarket. Uh, when the, and when the album drops, you need to be the first one to get it. Try to get the physical copy of it because, you know, you make more money not from downloads, but from actually having the CD, just so you know that. Thank you, Aja. Thank you, Robin. You're the GOAT. I appreciate you. (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.